I'm Damian Willis, and this is The Reporter's Notebook from the Las Cruces Sun News, a podcast in which we attempt to pull back the curtain on our reporting process while diving deeper into some of the biggest stories of the week. In this week's episode, we're talking to Algernon DeMassa, who generally covers statewide issues for the Las Cruces Sun News. He recently spoke to Darcy Morrison, an inmate at the Western New Mexico Correctional Facility in Grants. It's a life she describes as a quiet one. For much of the day, she works in the prison's library where she tutors other inmates. She told Algernon she completed her bachelor's degree last year and that she finds joy in teaching other inmates. After the daily 4 p.m. headcount, she typically reads or watches Jeopardy, which we talk about a lot. In her unit, inmates room together in pods of four. She said her companions are quiet and they all get along well. The New Mexico Corrections Department still lists her under her former married name, Darcy Smith. As a teenager, she was briefly wedded to Eric Smith, whom she described as violent and controlling in a relationship marked by substance abuse as well as physical and psychological violence. What led to Morrison's arrest and ultimately being sentenced to life in prison dates back to a night in November 1992. It's complicated. And at the end of the night, 17-year-old Adam Price was dead. This week, we're talking to Darcy, who was kind enough to join us this week to discuss uh, her ongoing fight to have her sentence reconsidered. We're also joined by Algernon and attorneys Denali Wilson and Lolita Moskowitz from the American Civil Liberties Union, the ACLU who were representing Darcy going forward. First, Algernon, Darcy, Denali, Lolita, thanks for taking the time to talk to us today. Oh, no problem. I'm I'm actually kind of excited about it. (laughs) Uh, I, I can imagine. Darcy, let's start with kind of the hardest part. Let's uh, get that behind us and talk about that night in November of 1992 when this all began. At that time, you were 17, I believe, the same age as Adam Price. Tell us what happened that night. Oh, um, well, I was uh, I was with my boyfriend at the time, Eric Smith, and he and I had a abusive on again, off again relationship. And um, my other co-defendant, Mark Apodaca, who was my sister's boyfriend. Okay. Um, they were they were best friends, and I was kind of they treated me like a mascot, basically, and so I was expected to be around them, kind of. Uh, not quite a servant, but it was like, you know, I was, I was kind of like the little sister that got picked on all the time. (laughs) Right. Right. Sure. Um, yeah. And so they were drunk and they got 
they they were drunk and belligerent, basically. And I'm not really sure how the idea took shape. But at one point, we had been on the um, campus of UNM. And okay. they saw Adam walking. And they pulled the car over. And Eric and Mark both got out of the car and forced him into the car in the back seat. And they didn't know him at all, right? Um, I was not aware of them knowing him. I didn't know. I mean, they, you know, if that had been four years, if that had been four years later, that could have been me. (laughs) If it had been November of 1996, I would have been walking on the same campus that same night. Yeah. I mean, it, it really, it was, Finding out later that, no, they didn't know him, um, it was just, it was a random act. And I don't know what was going through their heads. I just know the kinds of people that they were at the time and that probably were not thinking very, very good things. And they, they, so they basically, they forced him into the car. I was sitting in the middle of the front seat, and it was one of those old 70s cars with the two doors, so it was a bench seat. Big bench seat, yeah. Um, Yeah, and I'm quite a bit smaller than both of them, so I couldn't really, I mean, there was nothing that I could really do. I was just there, you know, and um, so they drove the car out of Albuquerque on the freeway and they headed south. Um, they did stop at one point and got out of the car. I stayed in the car and there, my, my ex-boyfriend, Eric, was trying to fight with Adam. He kept hitting him and you know, trying to get him to to fight back, and Adam would not fight back. And then they put him back in the car and continued to drive south. After they, we've been going south about, oh gosh, I don't know, an hour or so. Yeah, Um, I I think everything ended um, around Bernardo, if I'm not mistaken, yeah. which is yeah. to to give listeners some context, kind of a, a wide spot in the road off of I-25, about 40 miles west of Mountain Air. Yes. Um, and at the time, I didn't know where it was. I just knew we were on a dark freeway and it had been, there had been a massive snowstorm a few days before that. So everything was snowed, you know, like with a foot of snow and the there was not a lot of traffic. There was not a lot of anything. And, um, and they got off the freeway and there was, I can't remember a lot of what was said, but I remember they got him out of the car. We all got out of the car and I stayed near the front of the car. And I remember, um, Eric had his gun um, it was about 10 to 15 feet away from me, maybe a little bit further, and he shot him. Yikes. And then, 
Yeah. And then it just kind of like turned into a blur. It just, uh, all I could hear was gunshots. What were, what were you Um, thinking at that, at that time? I was in shock. Um, I just, I would, I, I mean, Eric and Mark were liars. I mean, they, they told big stories. They bragged about all kinds of stuff that they thought were cool. And, you know, I just, I never believed them because they, they told, you know, Eric had this story about how he used to drive a race car for Duke City Raceway. And it was like, that wasn't true. So, yeah, they, you know, they, they were um, famous for telling whoppers. Yeah. So, you know, just different things that they had said. I, I never, I never thought to myself that this would be something that they were capable of. You know, I mean, granted, they weren't, they weren't nice guys, but, you know, I, I grew up military and I had always lived on bases where, you know, it was, it was safe. I could go trick or treating without my parents because everything was safe. People watched out for each other. People didn't do stuff like that. Sure. And so, you know, to be around them and, to see like right in front of me that this is happening. It was just, it was like my world exploded. Basically everything that I thought was, you know, true was just, I wasn't safe anymore. Nobody was safe. And you maybe (laughs) I, I planned on doing this a little bit later, but maybe now is a good time to uh, bring one of the attorneys in to kind of explain what felony murder is, because I know that that term in itself confused even some in the newsroom when uh, we were kicking it around. Do one of you want to kind of weigh in on that? Absolutely. Um, This is Denali. So felony murder is an old legal fiction in criminal law in which someone who was involved in a felony during which time someone was killed, that person, by way of their involvement in the felony, can be held to the same standard and punished the same as the person who did the actual killing. So if if and, I set a building on fire and somebody dies, or if I'm robbing a gas station and somebody dies, then you can get charged with felony murder. Right. And yeah. And and in Darcy's case, there's there's a lot of different um, components to felony murder as something that's been litigated for for the very reasons that I think everybody, as you said, in the newsroom was kind of scratching their head, right? It's been, it's been highly litigated in New Mexico and across the country. Um, and, and people are asking the question, you know, does this make sense? And the reality across the board is that maybe it does not. And that specifically for, for children who have people who are under 18 at the time of their crime, and end up being sentenced as children or sentenced as adults and sentenced to life in prison. And then nationally, more than 25 percent of those people were convicted of felony murder or accomplice liability, which means that 
you know, they weren't the primary perpetrator of the crime and they might not have even been present when somebody was killed. Yeah. And in this case, um, you've got Darcy, who was apparently uh, an unwitting participant, you know, like she she didn't know this was going to happen. She was surprised when it did happen. It doesn't sound like there was a whole lot she could do to stop it while it was happening. So I certainly understand, you know, the the argument there. Um, Can I interject something a little bit? Absolutely. I just want to say that, you know, that night I did feel like something was wrong. It wasn't a complete surprise. You know, we get those gut feelings that something is wrong. And I did feel that. Do I feel like I could have changed it? No, but I also don't feel like I am innocent in it. You know, I, I feel like that I was there and, you know, maybe I should have done something. Maybe I could have done something. I don't know because I didn't try. And, you know, that, that is something that raises my guilt in my own self and, you know, dealing with and paying for my perceived crime that that night is that I do feel guilty and I do feel like, you know, maybe there was something that I could have done, you know, and, and I've, I've told people more than once, I do not maintain my innocence in this. I don't, you know, because I don't know if there was something that I could have done that I'm, that, you know, I may have missed. It's, it's something that, I've gone round and round with myself about and, you know, whether it's one of those things where people tell me where, you know, it's just, you know, there's nothing you could have done or, or something like that when, when other people tell me that. And that's nice of them. I appreciate that. But I have to deal with this. I have to deal sure. with the fact that I was there, you know, and I have to deal with the fact that, you know, maybe there was something that I could have done to help Adam. Or, you know, to stop what happened. And I will never know. Ultimately, you were convicted of first degree felony murder and false imprisonment, false imprisonment. And and you got sentenced to life plus 18 months. Is that correct? Yes. So in New Mexico, life means that you're eligible for parole after 30 years. You've now spent 24 years in prison and under current law, you're not eligible for a parole hearing for another six years, give or take. And that goes for all adults, which you were sentenced as uh, serving a, a life sentence in New Mexico at 47. Now, what is your you've spent half your life more than a little more than half your life in prison. What is, what is that time been like for you uh, in grants? Um, Well, prison is not a nice place to grow up. Um, It's not a nice place period, but I believe that, you know, there, there are people here who have seen the kind of person that I could become and they have been, supportive and encouraging and have been there for me. I've also been able to access a lot of the mental health treatment, which has enabled me to really make a difference as far as, you know, some of the disorders that have run in my family and that I've been subject to. 
I've, I've been able to make a lot of progress. And then the fact that my family has just been amazing. You know, my, my family has just been there for me since day one. And, you know, because I've had this encouragement, because I've had the support and the resources that have been made available to me, I've been able to be probably a lot more successful than some of the other inmates. But some of the things that have been easier for me are harder for others because people are very judgmental. And I've been very lucky that I haven't had to experience a lot of that. And some of the women come in here, even when they're young, and they come in with, say, drug charges or the child crimes and stuff. You know, they're they're not treated with as much encouragement and support. And it makes it more difficult for them to, you know, get what they need for rehabilitation. Right. People seem to have this perception of prison as lock them up and throw away the key. And the thing is, is that most people in prison get out. And we need resources. We need help so that we can become better people. So that that day comes when we get out and we are better people than we were when we came in. Right. Um, what I've, is what is your um, normal day look like? Algernon kind of talked about it a little bit in the, the story that he wrote. Yeah, my my normal day is I get up about a little bit before six o'clock in the morning and I go to Medline at medical and I am on psychiatric medication. I take antidepressants and anti-anxiety. I do that first thing in the morning and then I come back. I eat my breakfast, drink a cup of coffee, and then I go to work at 730 I work in the library and education. I'm a tutor. So I work with individual students with um, trying to raise their scores for GED. And I, I teach them in all subjects. And it's, it's kind of nice. I, I enjoy doing it. I really like um, being able to teach people something that they didn't understand before. You know, it's, it's a nice feeling when somebody's face lights up because all of a sudden they get it. <laughs> they get it. You know? Yeah, that, that light comes yeah. on. Yes, it's a great experience. And um, so I do that, and that's what I do all day. I come back in the evening, take my shower, and watch Jeopardy and read a book. And that's most of my life is reading. I love to read. I I enjoy teaching others. I I, I imagine like to stay positive. I imagine all of that probably makes you better at Jeopardy. <laughs> it does. It's like it your does. your whole yeah. life is uh, is is uh, preparing for tonight's Jeopardy. Yeah, it's um, I'm I'm pretty good with useless information. <laughs> <laughs> what is the the argument? And I don't know, Darcy, if you want to take this or if we want one of the attorneys to grab it. What's the argument as you? fight for a reduced sentence these days. Oh, Denali? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's why we have them here. Yes. <laughs> so your question is, what is the... 
the argument, the argument for, a for a reduced sentence. Yeah, well, um, I'm not sure how much listeners want to hear about the specifics of the, um, the case law, the, the hyper <laughs> hyper legal question. But at the end of the day, what happened in Darcy's case is relatively unique, at least the legal issue is. And, and then I want to talk about the ways in which it's not unique. Um, but there's there is a unique legal issue, which is that Darcy's attorney believed that her sentence was mandatory. Her sentence of life was was one that the judge had to give, um, that there was no discretion to consider her minimal participation. Um, there wasn't discretion to consider um, her use at the time of the crime or her um, status as, as, as someone who'd experienced violence and, and abuse. And that was that was one of her her original defense attorneys, um, Paul Kennedy, who testified to that in a sworn affidavit. Right. That's correct. Okay. Um, And and so in New Mexico law, when somebody is convicted of first degree murder, even felony murder, first degree, um, an adult has to receive a life sentence. Um, But that's not true for a child. New Mexico recognized in, in 1993 when we redid our children's code, we said um, uh, as a state, you know, as a lawmaking body, we said, you know what, we really think that even when a child has been involved in an act of serious violence resulting in death, that we want our judiciary to be able to consider youth because we know that, that it has such a great impact on culpability and that young people have such a heightened capacity for, for change and, and rehabilitation. And we want courts to take that into account when they impose criminal sentences on, on children. And at the end of the day, that didn't happen for Darcy. You know, um, everyone in the room believed that she had to receive a life sentence and it happened in a blink of an eye. And now we're looking at this 24 years later and saying, well, what do we do, right? What do we do when when something that was supposed to happen didn't, and it resulted in 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 Darcy being sentenced to spend life in prison? Yeah. What can we do now, Denali? I I think at the heart of this story is the matter of sentencing for youthful offenders. Do you want to speak a little bit more to that? Yeah, and and I'll start by talking about you know because. The ACLU represents Darcy, and we represent other people like her. Um, you know, in, in, in my work at the ACLU, I represent people across New Mexico who are serving life and other extreme sentences, all for crimes committed as children. And most of my clients that are serving sentences that mean, you know, without a change in law, they'll spend the rest of their lives in prison. And many, like Darcy, have already spent decades all for crimes committed when they were just 15, 16, 17 years old. And around this time last year in the 13th Judicial District, which is like Rio Rancho area. In in Sandoval, Sandoval County. Right. We won a substantial reduction in sentence for somebody on on a a challenge like Darcy's, um, somebody who was sentenced to more than a life sentence, you know, life plus like Darcy's sentences for a crime committed when he was just 16. And and the reason that I'm telling this story is that in declining to reduce the sentence to, to something less than 30 to life, the court said, 
they thought that this was a matter that would be better addressed by the legislature. And, and I, that's not the first time. Yeah, it's not the first time that the courts in New Mexico have said that. Almost 20 years ago, retired justice, Supreme Court Justice Richard Bosson asked the legislature to look at the policy issues behind extreme adult sentences imposed on children. And since then, the U.S. Supreme Court has chimed in on several occasions now, and our own New Mexico Supreme Court, too. And each time they emphasize the power that the state legislature has to resolve this issue by enacting law like that proposed in the Second Chance Bill. It is, it is um, not chance- terribly uncommon for the Supreme Court to say, we're not we're not going to rule, we're not going to make a... a uh, a ruling in this case, um, and and instead, kind of kick it back to the legislature. Yeah, and them. I've That's I've seen that happen uh, time and again. Yeah, and and the reality is that at the ACLU, you know, we're going to keep fighting for a second chances in the court because it's the right thing to do. It's the right thing for Darcy and for her family, and it will keep costing New Mexico money to defend extreme sentences and to continue to incarcerate people who totally outgrown the riskiness of their once adolescent brains and no longer present a risk to public safety. And that's going to go on unless and until the legislature takes takes action. Yeah. And this would be a good place, Algernon, for you to jump in because there is a legislative story kind of buried in in Darcy's case, right? And you wrote about this. And here I thought I was going to get away without having to answer nope. any questions. Nope. I, I've just been <laughs> trying to figure out all along how to bring you in. Well, all right. So, yes, there, there's, there has been in two consecutive legislative sessions in New Mexico, there have been efforts to bring legislation that would revise how people convicted of violent crimes as juveniles who are tried as adults uh, could be sentenced. Um, and essentially it, is, uh, uh, essentially, it is a means of assuring that they can at least be considered in a parole proceeding um, in less than 30 years. It's really, they're often called second chance bills. And these are really opportunities for lawmakers to not only pass legislation, but also to really have public discussions about what we believe as a society about a person's capacity for rehabilitation and really the value and the worth of their life. Algernon, can I jump in and just say, algernon has got that completely right. And the the bill, the second chance bill, um, the Two important, or would do two important things, would end life without parole as a sentencing option for for children, and it would create parole eligibility, um, establish eligibility for a parole hearing after 15 years of a sentence um, for for people who were children at the time of their crime, but sentenced as adults. And and in New Mexico, I talked kind of about you know the scope of the ACLU's involvement, um, but there are, there are just about 75 people in New Mexico who are serving sentences longer than 15 years for crimes committed as children. Some sentences like 60 years, 142 years, 
and a lot of life in prison sentences. And the retroactive component of this proposed reform would give individuals like Darcy, who have already served well over 15 years, the opportunity for a parole hearing. Yeah. Yeah, I appreciate that. And, you know, Damien, I was you know, one, one reason that we devoted time and, and resources to this story is precisely that this is, a, this is a kind of story that does not lend itself to a simple and easy narrative. And it really invites our community to engage thoughtfully in a number of ethical questions around not only Darcy's case, but just sort of our broad principle of what we really believe about jurisprudence, about justice and sentencing and finally rehabilitation. Sure. And it it also brings it to the forefront. You know, stories like Darcy's bring to the forefront this idea for decision makers, which I think is also important and kind of our role. We're not advocates necessarily. We're just saying this is an issue that uh, should be given a closer look. Yeah, I think there there are readers who I think assume just by writing about something we're promoting or taking a side. Um, and that's not quite the case. I guess if I am taking a side, I'm, I'm taking the side of, of human-based conversation um, yeah, and give discussion. It, give it a closer um, and, look. Exactly. And and what impressed me, even just when I was doing my research and I came across a handwritten filing that Darcy had written when she was representing herself and this strong desire to tell a story that is complex and has a lot of ambiguities that I think are worthwhile considering and wrestling with. You know, uh, in most cases, uh, judges look at aggravating and mitigating circumstances around a crime. Denali, you told Algernon there's a lot of mitigating circumstances in Darcy's case that should be taken into consideration as far as sentencing goes. Right. I I mean, um, one of the biggest things and, and a part of this that we haven't talked yet in, in much detail about is that the U.S. Supreme Court in a number of decisions over the past decade have said that children are fundamentally and constitutionally different from adults and that in the vast majority of cases, it's not going to make sense um, or be justifiable to, to sentence a, a child to life without parole. And really at the, at the core of those decisions is just one fundamental truth that youth matters and we have to consider it at the time of sentencing. And that's, that's, um, um, that is a true evolution in jurisprudence, basically. It is. Yeah. I mean, so in Eighth Amendment, cruel and unusual punishment, constitutional law, the standard is evolving standards of decency, which is like this grandiose legal jargon. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. But, right. But it, but it the kind of stuff that we don't want to talk person. about. <laughs> well, well, <laughs> I mean, I, I think sometimes the law and in these spaces, we get stuck in, in these, these really complex frameworks. But, but even those words, 
to to you or to any listener, like that has meaning, right? That as a community and as a society, our standards of what is palatable for us to do in response to to real harm and violence, that changes. That changes over time. And those changes have to be reflected in our law. Our, Our standards on a lot of things change over time, you know? And, and that that does need to be reflected in the law. I mean, let's bear in mind also historical context. Um, Darcy was tried and sentenced in the 1990s. And this was during a time where um, Clinton era narrative about crime and particularly crime committed by the younger generation was a very potent force in our politics. And that had its consequences in law and in policy and in sentencing. And so that context has changed. And some of these Supreme Court rulings regarding uh, juvenile offenders are fairly recent and, and subsequent to that period of our history and uh and the story delves into some of that as well that there's a historical context that is a direct relationship to how the law treats sentencing and rehabilitation i'm that's a fantastic point Algernon, and i'm feeling bad now because i feel like we're talking about darcy right in front of her (laughs) so darcy Darcy, come yes. back in. Um, I'm here. <laughs> should you get out? Should this be successful? Uh, how do you plan on spending your time? I really want to spend some time with my mom. She has been battling cancer now for a few years. And my mom and I have always been very close. And so I'm just, I really feel needed mm. out there. And like I, I can help and take care of her and, you know, just be there. And then I, I have sisters. I have family members that I've never met just because I've been locked up. And, you know, I, I have a cousin that I was raised with for a while when I was younger. And he has a wife and two children that I've never met, even though he's like a brother to me. You know, I just, I think I, there, there's a lot of things that I want to do with my family, just, you know, because they've been there for me, you know, so now maybe I can be there for them. And then I'd like to get involved in um, reentry programs as well, because there's a lot of, there's, there's a lot of missing information when someone is trying to get out of prison and, you know, there are resources, but there's, there's not enough. Right. And especially with, with someone like me where I've done a substantial amount of time and then to just go out there and hit the ground running, it's like, there's a lot of things that I have no experience with. Like I've, I've never had a cell phone. Um, I've never, Oh, count, had an email count your blessings. You know, Gosh. <laughs> But, um, you know, these are, these are things where I've, I've asked people, I was like, okay, how do you do a self checkout? You know, (laughs) where people who have been locked up for a long time, they need that extra help. They need those, 
the, the extra kinds of counseling to make that transition. And those kinds of things aren't available yet. And so I'm, I want to get involved with trying to make these things available to where people can make that transition from prison to the free world and be more successful. So we have a lower recidivism rate where people, you know, make a smoother transition and find a purpose, find jobs, find work that they can do instead of, you know, being so overwhelmed by the changes, you know, wrought in society. And, and, you know, it's, it's something that I think is needed. Algernon, I know we can't say much, but we were in contact with relatives of Adam Price who declined our interview requests. But you did speak to another family member of a victim who was killed by a youthful offender, right? I spoke to a few. Two of them are actually uh, appear in the story. Um, I did. I did make contact with someone from Adam's family who very politely declined to sure. to be a voice in that story, which is completely understandable. I did think that that perspective was important, and I spoke to a few people um, uh, with who reported different feelings about the whole issue of somebody um, being released after being convicted in something that, uh, in a violent offense. One thing that I heard, I couldn't use it in the story because the person did not want it to be quoted or attributed in any way. But just in con- conversing with this person whose uh, child had been murdered, they said that when it comes to a feeling of closure, they feel like they got that with the sentencing. They found the comfort in the process rather than in the suffering of the individual who was convicted. Um, this person was an attorney, it probably should be noted, but they found that closure in the process rather than in the punishment. And that therefore, if after some period of time, the process deemed it proper that that person be released, that they really had no feeling about it. Which I think is a fascinating viewpoint. Some other people said that they would feel fearful. Uh, some people also just said that it just somehow didn't feel right. I think that there is a narrative that people get put in a warehouse and are put away for the rest of their lives. There is that narrative. And there are other narratives too. There are narratives that these are people who are changing and that their lives may have some value and purpose um, after they uh, pay their debt, so to speak. And Algernon, while, while you're talking, Tell us a little bit about the changes in adolescent brain science that you discovered through your reporting. Thank you. That also gives me an opportunity to slightly revise a thought I just expressed, which is that um, <laughs> it's not just that the life it's not just that the life has value after a debt is paid to someone or something. That actually that is part of the process and that is part of the value. And and I think that relates actually to um, changes in adolescent brain science, which I am wholly unqualified to opine about in detail, but I can give kind of a, um, I can give a narrative overview. Um, since the 90s, in fact, during the 90s, this is again the, uh, this is the period when this case uh, made its way through the court. Uh, we were just acquiring the technology that would allow us to study brains 
that were living and active to do live brain research. And slowly over the decades, we've learned a lot more about not only how the brains are structurally changing from adolescence into adulthood, but also how these structures behave. That there's um, The story goes into some of these details that are highly relevant, but they do affect decision-making. They affect motivation and drive. They explain how someone who is young and understands right and wrong and, ha- and can have that feeling that Darcy described of knowing that something is not right, Right. But when around, but when around peers, uh, the brain literally behaves differently, and different structures uh, essentially take over. And if you introduce domestic violence into that situation, and the effects that has on the brain, you introduce alcohol, um, you introduce any sort of medical condition that affects hormones, for instance. All of these things affect the function of the brain. And so you see this curious, like, dramatic drop. There's a spike in activity in crime, uh, you know, from, like, late teens up to around the age of, I think it's 20 or 21. It's the early 20s. And then after that, there is a steep drop. And... Brain researchers have identified this in part with how the brain matures. And so we allow people as young as 15, 16 years old to operate automobiles and to hold down jobs and make certain kinds of decisions, executive level decisions. And yet um, the brain is still very much evolving at that point, And that's highly relevant in terms of assessing guilt and culpability right uh and uh joining the military for that matter darcy did you uh learn anything in that that you can use on jeopardy (laughs) (laughs) oh i'm sure i'm sure something will come up (laughs) um what do you guys want to add any of you just kind of identify yourself and chime in about that uh we we haven't discussed today um i'd like to to just touch on the fact that, you know, even though we're in prison, we're still human. And we still, you know, people tend to relate to us as less than or to dehumanize it to make it easier to deal with the fact that we are warehoused in these places as punishment. And, you know, I, I still want to go out and stand in the rain. You know, I, I still want to enjoy things, I, I, you know, and, and I still miss things like cooking on a stove and, and you know, spending time with my family and things like that. I'm, I'm still human. It, I made a huge mistake. And I will be paying for it for the rest of my life. Whether you're inside or outside. Right. Exactly. You know, and it's not just me that feels this way. Anyone else? Yeah. And I think that this is what Darcy's saying. Um, you know, that people are 
more than the worst thing that they've done. And children especially are more than the worst thing that they've done. And we need laws that reflect that. And when when children cause harm in our community, it's, it's important to hold them accountable in ways that are age appropriate and leave room for the profound potential that they have to experience positive transformation. Transformations that can then serve our community when people come home if they're given the opportunity. Algernon, um, it's your story. It's the story you wrote. Is there anything you want to add that we haven't talked about? I don't know if it's my story, but I, I wrote well, it. Um, it, Yeah, but, I, uh, I rethought yeah, that. Yeah, <laughs> you know, the thought I have is that I think as, you know, us ordinary people and citizens think about stories like this, I think that there is an understandable attraction to narrowing our perspective because it seems to buy us some simplicity. And I think that there's assurance in that simplicity. And I think that that's part of what's going on when we talk about safety and, and, the proper response to crime and such. Yeah, there's and, there's a, a built-in black and white dichotomy, you know, around around yeah. that sort of thinking. Yeah, I think, and I, I think I understand the attraction to that. And yet there's also something um, liberating and surprisingly assuring in opening our perspective to more information and actually broadening our own understanding and then returning to you know what is necessary for public safety? And does keeping a person in a circumstance like Darcy's really advance public safety? And if so, how? That is uh, well said and a good place to end this. Thank you all so much for, uh, for your time today. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Reporter's Notebook. We also have a newsletter sharing stories about, well, about how we report stories. You can find all of our stories and the rest of our reporting in the Las Cruces Sun News. A huge thanks goes out to Algernon, Darcy, Denali, and Lolita for joining us this week. You can read Algernon's reporting in the Las Cruces Sun News. Also, find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, and many of the places you find your favorite podcasts. This has been the Reporter's Notebook from the Las Cruces Sun News. I'm your host, Damian Willis. This week's podcast was written and produced by me. You can also find all our local reporting brought to you daily by reporters who live and work here in Las Cruces at www.lcsun-news.com. For all of us at The Sun News, thank you for the privilege of your time.